Psalm 53. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will the evildoers never learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread, and who do not call on God. There they were, overwhelmed with dread, where there was nothing to dread. God scattered the bones of those who attacked you. You put them to shame, for God despised them. Oh, the salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Thank you. Thanks, Jackie. Uh, Keep your Bibles open. We're going to be working our way through this psalm. Uh, It's not a very long one, so you can keep it in front of you and we can look through it together this morning. A few years back, we went on holiday to a little town called Dalesford. Uh, Dalesford is in Victoria. It's about an hour and a half uh, or so north of Geelong. Uh, The reason we went there was Dalesford is famous for its mineral springs. Um, We were students at the time, you know, stressed and worked out as, you know, students are. Uh, And so we thought, well, how good would it be to go and soak in some mineral springs and just wash all those worries and those concerns and that hard work away? So off we went. We arrived in the evening. The next morning, uh, our accommodation had provided a map of all the mineral springs in the area. So we thought, great, let's go for a swim. We packed our swimming stuff in the car uh, and drove to where the map was directing us. There was about three or four springs in the area. So we thought it was a good spot to start. We thought, we'll just leave our stuff in the car because we don't know what to expect or what it's like. We'll just go and have a look at what these springs are like first. And so we did. We followed the map and we got to where the first spring was supposed to be and couldn't see anything. Now, there was a small creek running by, but it was kind of you know, ankle deep, not really a swimming sort of thing. So we thought, well, we're obviously in the wrong spot. Let's keep walking. The next one is just up the road. Let's get there and have a look. And it happened again. We arrived and, and, and there was nothing. We, we couldn't see anything to swim in. It was quite confusing. And so I thought, well, what do we do? Well, we go back. And we walk back down the path and as we passed the spot where the first mineral spring was supposed to be, we saw on the side of the path uh, a hand pump. You know, like the, those mechanical hand pumps for, for a bore? It was a, you know, Dalesford's kind of a ye olde sort of town, so there's that, that sort of thing's lying around everywhere. We didn't think anything of it. But this time when we walked past, we noticed a little sign on it. And it said, Spring One. <laughs> See, the springs in Dalesford are for drinking, <laughs> not for swimming. Uh, we were very disappointed. <laughs> that's, that's terribly... Like in New Zealand, what we were used to, springs are for swimming in, they're warm and they're lovely. Here, they were for drinking and the water was disgusting. <laughs> it was awful, it tasted like sulphur. And so really, our, our, our time in Dalesford was quite disappointing. Lovely town, I'm sure, but our expectations were relaxing, swimming, soaking in nice water, 
not drinking weird tasting water. See, our expectations are important, aren't they? Uh, our, our mental image of Dalesford is now ruined because we took to it the wrong expectations and we will probably never go back there. How we, how we view something, how we treat something, how we uh, think about it after we've encountered it is all changed by our expectations. Now that's true for a whole raft of things but it's also true for us as Christians, how we look at the world. So how we, uh, what we expect from the world, how we form our ideas about the, the world out there will change how we approach it. It will change how we live in it, either for the better or for the worse. Now, in our psalm today, David wants to clear up all our wrong expectations or our wrong ideas and views of the world. And he wants us to see really clearly. He wants us to view the world correctly. Uh, And so he reveals the truth for us. And truth not only from a human perspective, but he shows us from God's perspective as well. Now we know this psalm is important stuff uh, because this is the only psalm that's repeated in the Bible. Uh, In your own time later, go and have a look at Psalm 14. It's almost identical. There's a couple of minor changes, but it's essentially the same stuff. This is important. (laughs) How How we look at the world is essential for us in order to live well in the world as God's people. Now I know it's been 2,700 years, roughly, since this psalm was written, but the truths that we find here are timeless. And in fact, they're incredibly relevant today and I hope you'll see that as we work our way through it. So let's jump in. Uh, The psalm starts with David, the writer, uh, looking out at the world around him and he particularly has in mind troublemakers that he can see, the fools as he calls them. Look at verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. Now David's not talking here about silly people as we use the word fool. No, what he's talking about is people who are deliberately wayward, uh, who are deliberately disobedient, who've strayed by their choice. That's what the word fool means usually in the Bible. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. We read that as a claim to atheism. It's not really what's meant here. Atheism didn't exist in David's time. Everyone had a God, usually multiple gods. That's not what they're saying. No, what the fool is saying here is, there is no God who cares about my life. There is no God who tells me how I should live or what I should do. There's no authority over me. There's no one who has a claim over me. I can do as I want because there is no God who cares and no God who tells me otherwise. Uh, That's why the fool says this in his heart. It's not with his mouth as if it were an announcement. Uh, It's not with his mind as if it was a conviction. It's in his heart. It's in how he lives, how he acts in the world. In his heart he says there's no God, so I'm going to live as I please. I'm going to do as I want. Why not? Well, David shows us what the results of that are. He says it is corruption, it is vile ways. The bottom line, there is no good there at all. But that's the fool. That's a certain group of people within society. What about the rest? Well, look at verse 2. 
God looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. See, all of a sudden, uh, everything broadens out, doesn't it? David's had his look, now it's God's turn to have a look at the world. And he looks down from heaven and he sees everything, the whole world. He looks at the sons of men, uh, that's literally children of men, it's a, a phrase to describe uh, not God's people, not Israel, but everyone else, the whole of the rest of the world. How are they living? Where are they heading? Are they any different or better than the fool? Well, the answer is no. Verse 3, everyone has turned away. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. When God looks at the world, he sees the whole of the world, not seeking him, not understanding the true way of things, but having turned away from him and thus wound up in corruption. And the bottom line there is grim. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, of course, humanly speaking, uh, good still happens. But from God's point of view, remember, we're looking through God's eyes here, there is no good in the world. He's seeing the hearts of people, he's seeing the motives behind what they do, he's seeing the ends of what they do and he sees there is no truly right or untainted deed done. None of them are for him, none of them are toward him and so they are not good by his perfect standard. Why is David telling us this? Why why is he drawing us to this such grim and, and, and dark conclusion? Why do we need to know? Well, he's doing diagnosis, isn't he? David's David's playing world doctor. He's putting his finger on the problem of the world. He's saying, this is what's going on. His conclusion is the heart uh, of all the problems in the world, whether it's for the fool, whether it's for the rest of the world, the heart of the problem is this. There is no God there. There is no God. Whether, like the fool, they've deliberately denied him and wandered from him, or whether, like the rest of the world, They've over time turned and and gradually moved from him. At the end of the day, the heart problem is the same. It is godlessness, a lack of God. The world has, has lost its touch with God and as a result has become corrupt and wound up in this terrible state that David describes. About half a year ago, uh, we found out that our car needed new tyres. You know, you kind of know that your car probably needs new tyres, but you always forget to check. Well, we found out. Uh, how did we find out? Well, I was driving in a terrible rainstorm. Uh, it was probably the heaviest rain I've ever driven in. It, w- it was absolutely torrential. And I was going on the highway around Olverston. You know, there's, there's a hill out the back here. I was coming down the hill. And it was like driving down a river. The water was sheeting across the road. It was amazing. And it was too much for my bald tyres. <laughs> and all four wheels lost traction at the same time. And, I mean, what do you do? You're just a passenger then. Thankfully, I was by myself, so no one else noticed. But I was floating down that hill at 100 k's an hour with no control whatsoever. I had no steering, no brakes. The tyres had completely lost touch with the road. <laughs> I was just along for the ride. I was just floating. Thankfully, uh, there was a long straight and, and no other traffic, so we could catch it at the bottom and, and be good. Uh, we went off quite a bit slower with my heart going quite a bit faster. 
But see, that's the problem with the world, isn't it? The world has lost grip with God. And what's the result of that? It's just drifting along for the ride. No control, no direction, no ability to change anything, just going along wherever it leads. And where does it lead? Well, David says, in evil and corruption. Because they're not going towards the God who is good and holy and righteous, the only other destination is evil and corruption. So we shouldn't be surprised, should we? When we look around us and see darkness in the world, what else would we expect in a place where there is no God? That is the world we are living in. That's what David wants us to see here. A world in which there is pain and suffering and wrong, the root cause of which is a lack of God, godlessness. Our, our papers try to diagnose it all sorts of different ways, don't they? It's, it's lack of funding, it's lack of education, it's lack of resources, opportunity, etc. But David comes up with the right conclusion here. It's a lack of God. Now that might make us despair because that's actually a bigger problem, isn't it? That's a far bigger problem, actually. But it shouldn't make us despair because actually it gives us intent. We have something to offer to the world then, don't we? We have God. We, we, we know him, we've heard of him, we understand him. We have him and that's what the world's missing. So where our, where our friends and our family are, are hurting, are suffering, are finding their lives aimless or purposeless, we can offer help because we can point them to what they're lacking. We can point them to God. That's, that's what they're missing. That, I mean, I know there's lots of secondary causes, but that's at the root of all their issues. Now, we're not going to be naive here. Uh, having God doesn't fix every single problem in the world. We, we, we still suffer problems. All God's people do. Sin and brokenness still exist. But having him changes everything. It changes everything. Our world needs God. Above all things, needs God. And that points us to what we need to do. We're not the means, uh, we don't have the means to, to fix world poverty, to solve uh, domestic violence, to, to employ everyone. We, we should work towards those ends because they're good things. But we do have God. And we can offer Him and we should offer Him. What the world is missing, we have rather than despairing at the godlessness of the world, we can offer him and point to hope. But David here is not pretending uh, or caught up in some sort of fantasy that the the whole world is just going to automatically accept God when they hear about him. Uh, He he, he knows that's not going to be the case. Praise, Praise God, some will, but not everyone. And so the question is then, well, how do we live in this dark and grim world? How do we live in this godless world? You know, David's painted the picture. Our world's like a, you know, a spiritual Gotham city. It's dark, it's brooding, it's dangerous. How do we live here? How do we live in a world that rejects him? Well, the answer is simple. Not by fearing. 
Now in David's time, uh, evil was, was organised, was uh, physical enemies and nations that were hostile towards him and towards God's people. But as he points out, that hostility is utter foolishness. Look at verse 4. Will the evildoers never learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread and do not call on God, why, will they never get it? Will they never understand? There are consequences to their opposing and attacking of God's people. What happens? Well, look at verse 5. There they were, overwhelmed with dread, where there was nothing to dread. God scattered the bones of those who attacked you. You put them to shame, for God despised them. See, the outcome is always the same. That's what David's saying. What happened before will happen again. Enemies rise up and God overcomes them and his people are safe. Their their enemies are cast into confusion and fear where there's really nothing wrong at all. In fact, God so thoroughly defeats them, he doesn't just send them away, but he scatters their bones. They're nothing anymore. They're gone. That's how God wins. God's people don't have to fear attack from their enemies. They simply have to trust him and wait for him. Now, of course, our time is a bit different to David's, isn't it? Uh, there are true, there are enemies who want to physically hurt and, and oppose God's people, but they're very much in the minority, aren't they? But even still, at the bottom line, they are not the enemy. People aren't our enemies. They're just agents of the true enemy. We saw it a couple of months ago when we looked at Ephesians 6, didn't we? Uh, in, in verse 12 there, Paul writes this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our enemies are spiritual. Our enemies are spiritual. But their end is the same as what David describes here. And in fact, their folly is even greater and their destruction is more final. Trust in God, not in our strength, not in our ability to to fight or to overcome. Trust in our victorious God who's already won. Not fear, just trust. I mean, let me me ask you a question. Uh, Do you fear smallpox? (laughs) Have you even heard of smallpox? (laughs) Do you fear smallpox? I mean, maybe you should. It's a terrible disease. Uh, smallpox spreads quickly, it kills very painfully. If you get it, there is an incredibly high chance that you will die from it. That's how it works. Uh, it's estimated that up until the 1960s, smallpox was killing around 2 million people per year. It's, uh, it's certainly a fear-worthy disease, isn't it? So why don't you fear it? Why, why don't you worry about it? Well, the answer is it's beaten, isn't it? Smallpox doesn't exist anymore. Uh, Through immunisation, through quarantine, it doesn't exist. We've beaten smallpox. It's been overcome. It's gone. So why would we fear a beaten enemy? There's, There's no reason, is there? And that's David's point here. Sure, our enemy exists, but he's beaten. He's overcome. He's been defeated entirely. And that's what Paul celebrates in Colossians 3, isn't it? This is, this is how he describes Jesus' work. It says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, remember those spiritual forces, he made a public spectacle of them, 
triumphing over them by the cross. See, not only scattering their bones, but making them a laughing stock. Jesus won. On the cross, he overcame the forces of evil. He destroyed their power. He made a public spectacle of them. He broke their fear. And so he says to his disciples, he says to us in John 16, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Why fear a beaten enemy? Why fear someone that has no power over us? Our world is a dark place uh, and the more you live in it and move through it, the more you'll you'll see its hurts and you'll see uh, its dangers. You'll see that it's a place where none seeks good. But you needn't fear it because Jesus has overcome it. All that could hurt us has been beaten and the victory is is his and thus it is ours as well. We have no need to fear. Yes, the world can hurt us but it can't overcome us and all that truly matters to us can never be taken away from us. So I think one of the problems that we have as Christians and that we have as churches today is that we still fear too much. You know, we, we, we look at our world and we, we fear our, the loss of influence. You know, we used to have a voice, we don't have it any longer. We, we look at our world and we, we, we fear the erosion of good values in society. All these things which are so right, which are now being taken away. Uh, we look around us, we fear condemnation people having a go or shunning us or pushing us to the sides. We we actually fear quite a lot, don't we? But that fear, it's so dangerous and it's so counterproductive. Uh, Fear and love, they they, they don't coexist, do they? When we're we're fearing, when we're just afraid of the world, we're, we're unable to love the world as we're called to do. Not only that, but our fear actually sets up a barrier that prevents us from relating to the world. You know, when we fear, all we do is react. We, we, we lash out, we get defensive and protective. And our ability to speak well and winsomely to the world about God is taken away. I mean, just, just think, when we fear, what, is it, what, what message are we sending to the world about God? I mean, imagine you go to a theme park uh, next week and there's a great big roller coaster there, a brand new one. And, uh, you want to go for it, but... You talk to the designer and he says, I'm not going on that. (laughs) I'm not going to do it. (laughs) You're not going to do it either, are you? It would be crazy. Well, would you believe in God if his followers were scared of him or scared of the world? (laughs) No, you wouldn't, would you? See, uh, when we fear, we, we don't witness to who God is, to his power. Don't get caught in fear, but trust in God. He is in control. He is victorious over all the powers of evil. Romans 8 tells us this, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Instead of fear, be confident. Jesus has won. Let his victory free you to live well. Not to fear but to live a life that that declares his power and witnesses to his victory. But we're not left there. 
David uh, doesn't just leave us looking back at what's happened, he leaves us looking forward at what's to come. He finishes with a prayer in verse 6. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Don't just look back at the victory won. Look forward at the restoration that is yet to come. Now David casts his eyes here to to Zion uh, for his salvation. That's a way of saying he's looking to God. Uh, Zion is is God's dwelling place. It's where he lived. It's where uh, God would have come down from, so to speak, to rescue his people. And that's David's hope. As he's done, so he'll do again. And when that happens, when God comes down, the fortunes of his people will be restored and life again will be as God intended it to be peaceful and pleasant and near to him. A beautiful thing to look forward to. And the awesome thing is that what David looked for, (laughs) we've already seen begin. God has come down from his dwelling place. God has come down from figurative Mount Zion. Jesus has come down. And not only come down to us, but dwelt among us. He came down from the Father to us so that we could be brought up to the Father with him and restored to where we ought to be. That's what he's come to do. He's come to save. He's come to restore our fortunes. And he does so first spiritually, but one day physically too. He does so first by taking us in whom there was no good. Remember, Paul quotes this psalm and applies it to us in Romans 3. Us who was no good and he makes us good. He takes our evil, our corruption, he kills it on the cross. He takes our destruction in his death and he makes us righteous with his own righteousness applied to us. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the great swap has been made. Our sin put on Jesus, his righteousness put on us and we stand before God completely acquitted, (laughs) completely saved, our spiritual fortunes utterly restored and in fact so much better than they were before. (laughs) Now we have no conflict with God. Now there stands no debt unpaid between us. Now we are his children restored, brought close to him, righteous as Jesus himself is righteous. So rejoice, be glad. Restoration is here and it is yours in Jesus. But there is yet more to come. Spiritually we've been made new. Spiritually we are being restored. We're we're not who we were, we're alive again but one day physically too. One day physically we will be completely restored, inside and out, head to toe, made new again, as God created us to be, as God always intended us to be. That is the hope that we look forward to, that once more God will come down, this time forever, and he will restore us. He will make us as we ought to be, who will make things right. Don't look at the world and its turmoils and its pains, but fix your eyes on the future 
on that restoration, on that salvation and take heart. You might have uh, heard this before but one of the, the cures for seasickness is to look at the horizon. Um, I find that doesn't actually work for me. But when you've got land, looking at land, that's a great fix. It works. Now, it's not a nice thing to do. You have to look up. You have to look over you know, the, the sea and all its waves and everything uh, that's kind of making you feel ill. You have to look past that and you have to look at that horizon. You have, to, you have to fix your eyes on that and keep ignoring all that stuff in between it and see that, that firm and stable destination. And then, usually, you'll be fine. <laughs> so too here. That's, that's what we're being asked to do, to, to lift our eyes past all that's upsetting and all that's painful and dark in this world, uh, all that, that, that hurts and afflicts us, and to fix our eyes on this, this firm and stable thing that's, that's coming in the distance, that destination that's being promised to us here. We need to look at the darkness and acknowledge it, but fix our eyes on the hope that is solid and that is coming. Restoration is on its way. A return to perfection, a return to this good that God has created us to enjoy. The first instalment's here. Jesus has come once and the second instalment is coming when Jesus comes again. And all who've received him will receive that restoration. All the pain, all the hurt, all the tears, all the mourning and evils of this world will disappear <laughs> and not only be gone but be forgotten, be, be lost, caught up in the glory of what's to come. He is bringing restoration. A new world that is like this but better in every way. All its goods better, all its evils gone. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen. What is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 2 Corinthians 4. Glory is coming. (laughs) Something better is on its way. Salvation, restoration. So fix your eyes on that and endure the hurts of this world until that day. Until then, live well. Understand the world we live in. Understand what it needs. Don't fear it but trust God. He is in control, he is over all and he has fixed a glorious future and destination for us. So live in this world, but live for God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us as your people to live well in this world. Father, may our lives be a testimony to your power, to your goodness and to that firm hope that we have in you. Father, free us from fear. Anchor us in the victory of one in Jesus. Save us and lift us out of our despair. Fix our eyes on that restoration that is to come when Jesus returns. And so help us to live well, boldly, with firm hope, as your people, your ambassadors in this world, pointing to you in all things. In Jesus, our Saviour, we pray. Amen.